Welcome to Breaking the Surface, where we break into a delicious beverage and also dive into the topic at hand. I'm one of your co-hosts, Taylor Kramer. I'm the owner and lead producer for Cold Shower Media. I'm Beth Milligan. I'm a journalist here in Traverse City. And I'm another friend. I am Anthony Weber, and I am a pastor and an ethics teacher, and I am something of a fashion icon when it comes to oversized sweaters. The point here is that we want to go beyond the talking points to get to the depths of what is happening in our world. It should also be said that this podcast is part of the Boardman Review Podcast Collective in collaboration with Cold Chart Media. The Podcast Collective aims to provide unique content curated by the Boardman Review, the creative culture and outdoor lifestyle journal of Northern Michigan. Welcome back to another episode of Breaking the Surface. This is season two, episode six, and we are dipping into a beer from Bell's Brewery called No Yeah. No Yeah is an easy drinking beer that's bright and fun, both inside and out. The label and design play into the meme culture that pokes fun at Midwestern politeness. Attention grabbing and fresh, this golden ale stands out on the shelf. And just like many of the Midwestern phrases we use, it demands repeating. It's just a really nice beer. <laughs> I like that. It's, yeah, go it's got ahead. little models on the side like, yeah, no, for sure. And Ope, sorry. Ope, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> Did anybody else see after uh, Eminem performed in the halftime Super Bowl? Yes. They were like, all the Midwesterners think that he says, Ope, there goes gravity. <laughs> bells they you know put a lot of great michigan beers um this is just yeah just a nice easy drink and not offensive it's hey guys just yeah, a easy, it is nice you had an initial reaction to it when you were yeah, first drinking like it the wheat is strong with this one and that's not a bad thing it's very distinctive yeah i actually really like this thank you bells brewery so this episode is going to be a little more lighthearted. we're just going to talk about some pop culture stuff, books or movies or TV shows or music that we're liking right now. And I'm going to start this out by throwing it to Beth, who just saw the big new movie release. Tell us about it, Beth. (laughs) Yes. I went uh, opening night to AMC IMAX to see The Batman. And I knew I was in the right place because while I was walking in from the parking lot to the movie theater, I passed at least three separate teenagers at Batman costumes. That's awesome. And you know what? It was a little bit nerdy, but it was also joyful. And it it was a pretty packed theater. And again, um, I think we talked in the last episode about how things are maybe coming a little back to normal COVID-wise. The movies are definitely one of the places where I feel that, where I feel pretty safe again, being in a packed theater like this. And it was kind of fun. If you've ever been to, you know, a big Harry Potter or Marvel movie, whatever on opening nights, it's like a lot of the diehard fans are there and it's usually a rowdy audience. And it was definitely the case with this. You guys have not seen it yet as of the time Mm, of the recording, right? Okay. So I'm going to promise people who are listening and promise both of you that I will not spoil anything. I'm very sensitive to spoilers myself as a, as a pop culture nerd. Um, I just wanted to talk just generally about it in, in very general terms. I would encourage people to see it if they like the Batman movies. Um, it got to the end of the movie and I turned to my partner and I said, that felt like a David Fincher film. Like it hmm. felt like the movie seven um, to me, uh, which, you know, seven was a pretty hard R rated yeah, yeah. movie. It was, it's PG 13. So it's not quite that hard, but it was a PG 13 David Fincher <laughs> film is what it felt like mm. Matt Reeves is a director, but 
It really, it was, I think it was the darkest and the bleakest of all the Batman movies. And I'm including the Dark Knight and the Christopher Nolan movies. It really was almost to me like a detective murder mystery movie that just happened to have Batman in it mm-hmm. and the Riddler in it. It was very straight. They didn't do the normal, again, I won't get too much into plot, but they didn't do the normal like reboot of his childhood and the parents dying. And like, they didn't get too much in the origin of things. It was just like, here's Batman out in the streets doing his thing. There's these murders happening. He's kind of basically a, another detective um, trying to solve it. Mm. I wasn't sure how I would feel about that approach, but I really, really liked it. I know Taylor, you and I, before we started recording, we're talking about like Robert Pattinson, mm-hmm. who most people know from Did the he twi- sparkle in the sun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he still only likes the dark. <laughs> <laughs> I have to give him credit from evolving from the twilight series to being able to pull off a movie like this, because I also had my doubts and I just have seen him as a sort of like twee teen, you know, romance hero and didn't know if he had like the gravitas to, to do this, but I think he's very good in the role. I think the take on it is really interesting. He's like a truly tortured Batman. He's not like, Ooh, shooting gizmos. And he's got that. There's still the cool Batman stuff, but he's a truly tortured human being. Hmm who I think the movie kind of really gets into the psychology of what it would be like to really live that life. And without saying anything spoilery else, I would just say that towards the end of the film, there are some nods to current events and to our current political radicalization Mm. that if not handled well, I think would have felt clumsy, um, but instead felt very chilling and scary and effective to me. So it was, it was really well done. Yeah, I'm very excited. I trust you. I trust your word on things like this. And so it was something that when I saw Robert Pattinson, I was like, I don't know. This could go either either direction. Sometimes they surprise you, do a really good job. And then other times you're like, yep, that's kind of what I figured how they might how they might do that. Um, so I'm excited to see this because I'm very interested in the, the psychology of that, what it would be like. I like when they embrace the darkness of what it would be like to be Batman um, because not only do we know that he has a tortured past, but the things that he's engaging in each night in terms of fighting crime are all things that are going to um, probably really affect you mentally. And so I like when they dig into that. Yeah. A l- little bit like the daredevil series. Mm-hmm. I think Yeah, it was fun to kind of dive into what must it be like to lead that kind of double life. Mm-hmm. I find it fascinating how much Batman keeps being retold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Spider-Man does too. I guess Superman does too. There's something about, the superhero mythology that just lends itself to every 10 to 15 years, um, putting a new spin on it that responds in some way to what the culture is looking for in their heroes, or maybe what the culture fears in their heroes. Mm-hmm. And so you get the spinoffs where you have superheroes who are terrible. What's the one on Amazon? It's either Amazon, Netflix, the boys, the boys. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So you'll get the spinoffs yeah. where they deal with it separately, but I enjoy watching the retellings of these kind of iconic characters, I feel like it gives us a good mirror on where we're at. Yeah. And I like, I've always liked Batman because I feel like, I mean, I, I like all the superhero movies. I like all the Marvel. I, I go and see all that stuff, but like, you know, Spider-Man's always sort of like more of a teenager, kind of more optimistic, mm-hmm. wisecracking kid. Um, uh, Superman has always been, you know, really messianic and, you know, almost like this, like, Christ's savior mm-hmm. for humanity. But Batman is like 
the best Batman movies, not just this one, but I think all of them, and even maybe the origins of the comics, he's like a pretty tortured, dark person yeah, he's himself. Not okay. He's yeah. like an anti-hero. Yep. <laughs> yeah. He's he's sort of like, yeah, he's someone who's, you know, went through this traumatic event as a child. He clearly hasn't healed from it. And it's like he's kind of like the hero that humanity needs, but he's clearly messed up before. Like mm-hmm. you don't know if he like would really want to be Batman. <laughs> like he lives this kind of dark life. And that's true in the movie. I don't know that there's ever gonna be a villain as iconic as Heath Ledger's Joker. Cause he that was just such an amazing performance. Um, the Riddler in this movie, I think, is more relatable as like, again, a, a villain that could come out of our current times. He's chilling in that way. It's a different kind of villain. But yeah. we should know this. Is who that plays played by Andy Serkis? Uh, uh, no, he plays Alfred. Uh, oh, OK. Um, uh, Paul Dano from okay. uh, There Will Be Blood uh, ah. plays the Riddler. And yeah, it's yeah, it's very good. So. Hopefully in the future we can catch up when you guys have seen it. <laughs> My wife and I have been watching Superman and Lois on the CW. Oh. And it's really good. It, it does, once again, doesn't do really backstory stuff. It starts with Superman and Lois with teenage boys mm. and picks up there, just kind of plops you right down in the middle of the story and off they go. And it deals with um, whether his boys have powers or not, what they'll do with that. Um, there's multiple worlds. It's been really well done. And it's been one where at the heart is about the relationship of the family and the relationship of people on the town and all the stresses that come with if if there's a Superman who's your dad or your husband and you're trying to keep it a secret, whew, there's a lot, there's a lot going on. And so we have just really enjoyed it. It's been great family entertainment for one, but really well done. Yeah, yeah this this particular I will say one note that this particular Batman movie uh, I think comes as close as it could be to an R <laughs> without being an R. And this is one, you know, we're a long way from like George Clooney nipple costumes and Schwarzenegger <laughs> making ice puns where yep. it was kind of campy. Um, I saw kids in this theater and I was like, you know, this movie feels very dark for children. And mm. I know uh, that's a big part of why they keep films PG-13 is so mm. they can get that revenue box office from kids and teenagers because they love Batman. But I'm just going to warn anyone listening who's thinking about taking someone younger than a teenager that I think it's very dark for children. Mm. I would maybe see it first in your own. I wonder mm. if that'll set it up for an R version um, later, like a sequel, because we saw things like with Logan um, from the mm-hmm. X-Men, I believe that was rated R and then mm-hmm. Deadpool and different shows like that, where it was like, yeah, we're going to sell out. Cause we can, we can really do some creative things here in these films. And so we're going to um, kind of sacrifice maybe getting the younger crowd in a sense, because um, still feel like a lot of parents just let their kids still go see it despite the change in the ratings. Cause it was still a superhero movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was probably a huge mistake. If you don't usually seen have Deadpool. toys of like R-rated movie characters. Right. That's part yeah. of the problem, you know, is like yeah. that walking. McDonald's can't sell them with a kid's meal. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> right. But th- this movie did hint that I think there might be more in the series of this line that Pattinson might play Batman again. Riddler might come back. There was a hint at the end that Joker mm. might come. So I think he might direct more. But yeah, it's it's a pretty dark turn for the series. Mm. Um, but I was also curious if you guys, so on the movie front, like you mentioned, you've been watching. Um, yeah, we did. But I was going to mention a different show, actually, which yeah. has a sort of superhero. So this is Jack Reacher. Hey, I was going to bring it up as Were well. You? Okay, okay yeah. awesome. I mean, I have another backup, but I, okay. I really want to, I have a quote to throw at you that I think would be great. So uh, <laughs> I've read all the Reacher books, maybe twice. 
Um, I actually enjoyed the Tom Cruise movies because any Reacher movie was going to be okay. But Tom Cruise captured his persona really well, but just couldn't capture his presence. Because he's a small man and Reacher is supposed to be very big, Reacher right? is like 6'5", six, 6'7", six, mm. 250 pounds of just slabs of muscle. Yep. You know, hands the size of a Thanksgiving turkey, that type of thing. <laughs> like, he's just a bigger... Beth, Beth, you and I have a picture with Lee Childs from yes, when he was do. here yeah. in town at the National Writers Series. Yeah. Yep. Um, <laughs> so, I, I'm a big fan of the Reacher series, but I'm a big fan in a way that I'm a little torn about. Because Reacher isn't always a good guy. Mm. Um, he's really violent as the books have gone on. And I, I actually appreciate this. The books have kind of let it settle in that he might not be okay inside mm. uh, a little animalistic, um, really brutal, very comfortable with brutality and basically refuses to form relational allegiances with people. Mm. Now he has, he's loyal to people who are loyal to him, I guess, or maybe who he's been in the military with, but in terms of relationships, he, he seems to be quite in some ways quite cold. And after I watched this series for one, my wife and I had back and forth discussion about whether or not it captured the persona we thought of when we read the books Mm. to my wife and my sister, who's probably listening to this podcast. (laughs) They really thought it captured how they envisioned him reading the books Mm. It didn't capture how I envisioned him when oh, reading the books. A little difference in men and women, the way. That yeah, they, yeah, I think so. Um, I envisioned him as never like almost cheerful or nonchalant. I saw him as always grim, and they had not read him that way, which mm. I thought was interesting. Mm. And so it took me an episode or two to adjust because he wasn't always grim. He felt too nice at times. Uh, but the more I watched it, once I got into the second episode, I I was hooked. Um, once the fighting started, frankly, they did a really nice job with his persona and his presence really captures Reacher. What struck me as I watched it was two different things. And I read some interviews afterwards with Lee Child about the series. And there's some other writers who have spent time with him, watching him go through the writing process to try to get inside his head about what he does with Jack Reacher. Um, I almost saw Reacher as someone who was on the spectrum in this show mm. because he seemed to exhibit things that people on the spectrum often exhibit. So for example, not reading the room well in terms of what might I say here? What shouldn't I say? Mm. Um, An emotional disconnect perhaps between things he's going through and the things that are happening. Like there's a a great moment where someone close to him dies. I don't want to give too much away. And um, he's talking with someone on the phone and they say to him, how are you doing? And he said, I didn't die. I'm fine. Mm. Like you're like, whoa, that's, uh, and so I, I thought it was interesting just because, and I've talked with several people about that. And if you think about it, watching it, it will pop out to you a little bit. Um, and it made me think it's, I wonder if the directors and I couldn't find anything were creating in a sense, a hero that was intended to kind of be a little more inclusive in the sense of what type of people play these kind of roles. I have no idea. Um, Maybe you two would watch it, or maybe I don't know if you thought about it or not, Taylor. And that did that did not do anything to detract my appreciation of the show capturing the story. Just an observation I had. But the other thing was, it it just struck me once again. He's a guy you want on your side, mm-hmm. but he's a guy that mm, you might not want as your neighbor. Mm. Like he's he's going to take the law into his own hands. He's going to do what he thinks is right. He is a vigilante in some ways. Um, fortunately he's a vigilante who gets things right, 
but gracious, that could go off the rails pretty fast. And Lee Child has actually said in interviews, he's not a guy that you would like to be around. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And I felt like this did capture that a little bit that, yep, you want him on your side, but they're probably right. He might not be a guy that you actually want around, Mm -hmm. which is maybe once again, a hero for our times. I don't know this conflict, this idea that um, nobody is all good all bad, so to speak. There's this swirl within us, but it's Sultan needs to say the line between good and evil runs through our hearts. You do pick up that a bit with Reacher. And I think that's probably appropriate. Like you're, you'll find yourself sometimes cheering him on going like, yeah, that guy deserved that. And other times going, Oh, oh um, <laughs> that's, uh, slowly back out of the room. Yeah. Yeah. Back out of the room. Like, yeah, maybe you should get on the bus and move on. Yeah. Uh, what did you think about it, Taylor? Well, so I've, I think when I was a kid, I had read a couple of the Reacher books, but um, my experience watching the show was not based off of what I had gained from reading the books necessarily. And I'd often heard you talk about how important the physical stature was in, in playing the character. And so the person they got was very appropriate for that. And then you got to see it play out. I was, I don't know if you've spent a lot of time around people that are large, like I'm not just talking you know, larger than average, but that are just big, yeah. huge yep. people. And there's differences among those people. Some will almost like crouch down and try not to be as big because people are even like embarrassed about their size and how much room they take up. And then there's other people who are like, yeah, I'm six, eight. I can't escape it. I'm going to own it. And then in some ways it's uncomfortable to be around those people if they know that their physical size allows them to do and say things that mm-hmm. other people can't do because they can go probably in any public space and say or do something and no one's going to like bother them or right. get in their space. They're going to move out of the way. They don't have to move out of the way for anybody. And I really got that sense with this, with this character is that he knew he was big and that played out in everything that he did mm-hmm. in the, in the fight scenes. Um, he was constantly eating, which is, that's not an embellishment. People that big are yeah. going to eat all the time. And <laughs> it was a big part of his character. And so I, um, I found that to be really fascinating. I was watching it like on my computer on and off and Abby would walk in and there's some cheesy lines in that show. I mean, Mm -hmm. we all get the more access (laughs) we have to like Apple TV, HBO Max, where there's just such incredible shows available to us now where the dialogue is perfect. Like every line, you, you know, if there's two lawyers in a show that are talking, both lawyers know exactly the right thing to say at exactly the right time. And we get jealous. We're like, why can't I be that smooth when I talk? Forgetting mm-hmm. that it's, it's a show and that's just not how communication is. I felt like this had communication that was more representative of like the average person's mm-hmm. conversations, which when you hear it and you're not living in the show, it sounds awkward in some ways. And so Abby was like rolling her eyes. She's like, <laughs> that is so lame. And I was like, I can't deny it. Like, yeah, it is. And then I saw this tweet about it. Where someone was like, for those complaining about Jack Reacher, it's because you're eating a pizza and and thinking it should taste like filet mignon. Yeah. <laughs> a pizza should taste like good pizza. And that's exactly what I thought the show was. Well, and his character does not lend itself to clever dialogue. Mm-hmm. He he often makes people so uncomfortable. In fact, that's part of his shtick is yeah. that he just doesn't say things because what he's learned is that people will babble. They don't like silence. Mm -hmm. I can vouch for that as a reporter. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's a a classic trick. He'll often just stay silent and then people stay, say stupid stuff. And so that is part of what's supposed to be happening. Mm -hmm. So the other thing I thought about, sorry, one other thing, and this, I'm going to tie this in with Bond, James Bond. Mm -hmm. 
I had I was ready to bail on the Bond series partly because I felt like the Bond series did not show um, reality. <laughs> okay, obviously it showed reality, but like Bond himself, you can't do the stuff Bond did and not just be a mess internally. And the way Bond treated women, wow, he just kind of used women and walked away. It was when Daniel Craig came on board that whoever was directing, I felt like started to make Bond more honest. And there was a couple of movies where like women confronted him pretty directly, like what is wrong with you? And you could see he was paying this emotional price for all of the things he had done. I'm like, okay, I can get behind this now because they're starting to portray a more realistic kind of cause and effect. Something that struck me with Reacher is that in most books, he has a girlfriend, a temporary girlfriend. and. And in this show, I thought it was very clear at the end, he just leaves. Like, this is what he does. They connect, they hook up, and then he leaves. Probably never to see her again. And you realize, oh, he didn't care about her. He thought she was pretty. And she's kind of falling in love with this bigger-than-life superhero guy who rides in to save the day. And he doesn't care. Mm. And I thought that one kind of, with the last episode, I thought, ooh, I think they captured that pretty well. And I think that goes to where Lee Child says, this isn't a guy you'd actually care for in real life. Yeah. Um, he leaves a trail behind him of, of ignored and hurt and forgotten people because really at the end of the day, Reacher cares about himself. And a lot of dead people. Leaves yeah. a lot of dead people yeah. behind. Okay, this is just so funny to me how important the size of this character is. So I'm just reading through. <laughs> I just want to read you. I'm just going to read you a, a series of headlines here. We don't get into the stories. It's the headlines. Reacher review. The house-sized action hero Tom Cruise will never be. <laughs> Amazon Prime's Reacher series provides the big man and big fung the films lacked. Exactly how big is Jack Reacher in Reacher? <laughs> At last, the freaky alien Jack Reacher we've been waiting yep. for. Yeah. And then the, my, the Times, which is always a little more subtle because they're a dignified, you know, <laughs> the great lady. This Jack Reacher is going to be big. <laughs> okay, so here's the other part of the mythos when I say kind of superhero. He's, not only is his name Jack Reacher, he's jacked. Yeah. But dude does not exercise. He rides on buses everywhere and mm -hmm. eats like... A yeah, horse he eats everything, yeah. and he takes his shirt off and there's not an ounce of fat mm -hmm. on him. Okay. He's clearly in the realm of nobody is like this kind of guy. Yeah. yeah. That would be like a, an out of this world type of thing. Cause the mm -hmm. first thing he should do when he rolls into town is get a gym membership to look right. like that. You <laughs> That's would think. right. And he's That's like, right. I'm good. I just, I just am. I'll have three pieces yeah. of pie and five <laughs> cups of coffee. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I have to confess that. Yes. So I worked for the writer series when Lee Childs came to town and I read some of the books because I tried to be up on the authors when they came. Reacher is like, in this category, I'm just going to confess my own snobbiness here. Um, and I was going to say maybe it's a female thing, but you mentioned your wife and mm -hmm. sister reading the books, and I'm sure other women have, so I don't want to assert gender stereotypes. There's like a category like Reacher books and like Tom Clancy books that I just have mm. had zero interest in mm. my entire life. They've I feel always, like this interview is over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They've No, I'm, I'm, I think I'm confessing my own blind spot. Like they have always seemed like so stereotypical masculine to me. They're always like espionage and military guys and doing cool stuff. And they got, you know, weapons. And I just like never had any interest in mm -hmm. it all growing up. I know there were so many men in my family who were like, you know, clear and present danger or anything like mm -hmm. just like <laughs> 
loved, yeah. love, love anything with like Harrison Ford or Tom Clancy or, and I never was into it. Um, and I'm, I'm totally just confessing that as like, I'm into a lot of pop culture and I've never been into the Reacher stuff. So I'm kind of curious. I think maybe I will give it a chance just to see. I don't know why it has lacked so much appeal to me, except for, I think what maybe what Taylor was talking about, if like Abby is rolling her eyes or whatever. Mm-hmm. It, it with I don't have the experience with it to do anything other than judge as an outsider and say, oh, this feels to me like really stereotypical, like um, toxic masculinity. <laughs> but I trust both of your tastes. So if you're telling me, maybe there's some nuance there that I'm having oh, experience. Well, <laughs> it was a totally cheap entertainment. <laughs> okay. I was watching it when she said this is cheesy. I was like, it 100% is. And I love it. <laughs> and some, I love cheesy stuff too. Yeah. So there's nothing wrong with just loving cheesy entertainment also. But I just was curious. I don't, I don't think it's toxic masculinity, but I do think it is an um, unfettered masculinity in some ways. Hmm. I mean, there's some ways in which Reacher is the ultimate gentleman. Mm-hmm. There's other ways in which um, when it's time to go to work, he becomes almost feral. And so I did notice as the series went on and Lee Child started to embed some language eventually where Reacher becomes clear he sees himself that way. Mm. Like he's basically an animal and this is what he does. And it it does, I think it is intended to give you pause. Um, and so I, when I when I think about why I like the series, because I don't, I, I'm not a guy who um, endorses violence as a means to solve problems. I think we live in a world where at times it's necessary. I think what appeals to me is that Reacher is a guy, he sees something is wrong and he can't leave until it's resolved. Mm. And I, there's a sense in which I have found inspiration by that, not to be in a fight <laughs> or shoot people, but just this idea like, no, no, wait a minute. If I see something's not okay, I should, what is my responsibility to make sure it is okay? What can I do in this situation rather than pretend it's not? Because in almost every book, he could pretend it's not his problem and go away. And it often isn't his problem. Mm -hmm. But something happens where he goes, no, I think I can solve this. And there's, I have, so I have an obligation to. And so even though his, his ends don't justify his means all the time, I, I have found myself in a weird way kind of inspired to what does it mean for me to when I see things around me in the world that are broken or not okay, what is within my ability to step into those situations and try to make things right that are wrong? Do you know, okay, as you're saying that, I feel like there's a very interesting parallel about that to Batman, which is a character that Mm -hmm. I relate to much more (laughs) than Reacher, but I have mixed feelings about that dynamic um, because I think that's exactly how Batman is or is in a lot of the movies. Mm -hmm. like, a guy who has unnatural abilities or wealth or resources or whatever it is. And so feels compelled to use those when he sees wrong in a society that everyone else doesn't seem to care, but he's going to go in and do it, even if it comes at personal cost or sacrifice. And I think there's something noble about that. I also like react to both of those characters in a similar way. And I, maybe this is a more female perspective, but It's not that I love the idea of someone doing the right thing and sticking up for the vulnerable and and trying to make things right, especially when the rest of the society doesn't Mm -hmm. seem to care. Like, I don't care. I I see this is wrong and I'm going to fix it. There's also something about that that kind of rubs me 
the wrong way. And I, maybe it's because I see smaller versions of it in my real life interactions with some men, but it's like a savior complex mm. or of like, I am the only person who can make this right. Like there's a hubris involved too, mm -hmm. sometimes to that of like, I get to decide. And this is very actually well addressed in the new Batman movie, but like I decide you know, he just like comes into crime scenes and stuff and is like walking around. And in this movie, it's more the police are like, what are you doing? Like, you don't have clearance to be here. And he's just like, no, no, I'm above law because I can solve this and you guys are idiots. You're not going to figure yeah. it out. Mm -hmm. But there is sometimes that, that sort of like, I that sometimes the attitude can curdle into thinking that you are an arbiter of right and yep. wrong um, that, it, that exists outside of the law. And so sometimes that like hits me a little bit the wrong way too, because it can go, it can go yeah. in a bad direction also. Well, and that's why I think, Reacher is not meant to be seen as, in a sense, a real person mm -hmm. because he never gets it wrong. Oh, interesting. Right. I see. Okay. Yeah. And He's would, never like, that yeah. would be an interesting book though. It would if be an he interesting made a book. wrong decision yes. in a big way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Taylor, were you going to add, you said you had a backup since I stole Reacher from yeah. you. Um, yeah. Prepare to be amazed. No, I, I shared um, <laughs> in our, in our chat that Abby and I have been going through and watching old seasons of Survivor. So I was, the first season of Survivor came out in I think 2000 or 2001. So I would have been 10 or 11. And I remember when that came on and it was like every week just gathering around the TV. It was like the first of its kind. It was this reality television where you could, especially in the earlier seasons, you could tell the people that were participating in it were genuinely miserable. Like there were people who mm. were giving up the chance at a million dollars because they were sick of getting bit by bugs, not having any food. They were losing some like 20 to 30 pounds during the 39 days that they're out, out there because there was no, there was no food. They had to catch their own food. And then you can kind of see things soften up in, in later seasons where it's like, you know, survivor, you know, the insurance company was probably like, Hey, uh, you have to kind of start giving these people some food. Um, <laughs> Nutrients maybe you can't, matter. Yeah, <laughs> maybe you can't have them um, getting injured in every challenge. I mean, there were just crazy people tearing up their feet and getting cut up and running on reefs and stepping on sharp stones uh. because I think that when they were setting up these challenges, they just didn't check that stuff. It was the first of its kind. Um, but what I'd realized and why I think we're so obsessed with it is that most seasons of survivor are taking place over the course of like 39 days. So if you don't get voted out um, at all and you end up end up winning or being in the final two or three, then you're there for like a full 39 days. And it's dubbed, I think the Jeff Probst will say this as he's like hanging out of a helicopter um, <laughs> to introduce the, the season is this is the, the world's greatest social experiment. And I always thought that that was kind of a cliche. And the more I was thinking about it today is I was like, Jeff Probst is right in a lot of ways because what happens in Survivor is that there are these these things or people have these characteristics or they do these, do these things like lying, um, like remaining loyal, like being trustworthy or being dishonest. Um, they do these things over the course of 39 days. And those are all things that we do in our lives. We, we trust others sometimes, other times we don't. And when we should have, uh, sometimes we lie, sometimes we're dishonest and those things, whether good or bad end up, there's, there's an, opposite reaction that comes down the line at some point. So if I'm a, if I'm an honest person, then that's going to eventually bear some type of fruit in the future. And hopefully it's a good fruit. If I'm dishonest or if I lie, then I'm going to uh, have some relationships kind of shatter at some point. And sometimes it, it doesn't take long and other times it takes years and years, or maybe you backstab somebody in the show. And then when it comes their turn to 
to vote for, for you if, if you're going to win the million dollars because they're on the jury, um, then they remember those things of how you treated them during the game. And so I was thinking, that is exactly how life is. There, there could be a way in which I hurt my, I hurt my partner, say, in, in 2015. And then all of a sudden, like, if those wounds haven't healed, I'm still having to deal with that in 2022. And so really why, and I figured this out of why I like Survivor so much, is that it just expedites all these processes uh, that happen in our real lives and just compounds them into 39 days and really, like, puts them on steroids, too. And, um, it's just really, really interesting. And Jeff is right. It is the world's greatest social experiment. And I've, I've loved it. We're, we've been bouncing around between different seasons. And, um, right now we're on season 30. So I think this one was taking place in 2015 and, um, it's fun to watch it get kind of more current as well, because the ones in, I mean, 2000 was so much different than, than today. And so it, it has been really cool also to kind of see how style changes, how language mm -hmm. changes, how, um, just kind of some of the cultural norms that people bring in have also changed. Um, so highly recommend going back and watching all 39 seasons of Survivor. 39 seasons. It's, it's so many seasons. Wow. I think so. 38 or 39. Even the show is a Survivor. Yep. Yeah. Yep. yeah. <laughs> there, there's a category of shows like that. Survivor is definitely one. I've watched not all, but many seasons of Survivor. And I remember the first season so well. Like you're saying, I remember watching it every week and it was so different. Um, the show alone which is on the mm, history yeah. channel, which is like they drop people out in the Canadian or Alaskan wilderness. And they, it's basically whoever survives alone, the longest in the wild gets like, you know, $500,000 prize. They've done some million dollar prize shows. They are allowed to bring like 10 items from like a list of things, like a tarp, a knife, you know, maybe like some protein bars, but like, they're not, they don't have a lot. And then they have regular like health checks. They have beacons on themselves, but otherwise there's not camera crews with them. They record themselves like out in mm. the wild. Um, that show and also amazing race. So those shows are all in a category where like, it's very easy at home to be like, what would I do? You yep. know, the cute picture, like Joe and I always watch these shows and we're like, oh, idiot like you have to build your shelter first before you get food you moron like or like because you just you you start to know i'm sure you from survivor yeah. you start to know the tropes yep. of the game like you gotta you gotta have an allegiance with people like what are you doing you know you gotta figure this out so they're like with each show has its own game mechanisms but there are like real psychological things and i think from this show alone what i've realized is like i've learned some actual real survival techniques from watching that show because people generally prepare to like be out in the wild in alaska well, you have to know them where you're living <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's your way on an mission. Um, but also it's so funny because like in every like beginning episode of Alone, there's always some guy who's like, you know, he thinks he's Reacher or some like commando guy. And he's like, and then he's like crying on the second night because he thinks he heard a bear of the wood and he's like pressing his, like they can press a button to get ejected from the game to get rescued. And he's just like frantically pushing it. Meanwhile, there's so many women on that show who come in and they're just like very like, calm and modest and then they like know how to go get the berries and then just like and they make it to the end because they have this psychological strength like mm -hmm. usually it's the psychology that breaks down first not the food mm -hmm. or illness or anything else and an amazing race which i love and just finished the season finale this week that show if you are having any relationship problems <laughs> And you watch that show, you will like see it reflected in the couples on that show. Mm. It's such a good reflection of, of you can tell immediately like teams that are healthy or not. Mm. When you put couples under stress and sometimes they're friends, sometimes they're brother and sister or sibling, you know, there's all kinds, but there's a lot of romantic partners on the show. Man, if you start 
missing things. Someone loses a map. You're under stress. You can see the way they talk to each other, you know, if, if they're disrespectful, if they yell at each other or the teams that are very like, you know what, you got this, hon, don't worry about that, who are supportive. Like the the, the couples that are supportive almost always tend mm-hmm. to do much better on the show mm-hmm. versus the couples that break apart and yell at each other in stress. And you know that that's how they are for real at home. Like it's real people mm-hmm. on a real show. Yeah. So you're right. Like there's there's, you know, TV elements to these shows, mm-hmm. but when especially when you put people under stress, I think those are the most interesting reality shows because it is really showing how people react. Yeah. And it it does, it it compounds it. So like if there's something in our real life, certain things might take months to play out or we might tell a lie one week, but we don't really like that person might not find out that we lied years down the line. And that's when things blow up. But here it's like, it all happens so fast. And that's what, why it's such great television. And um, I think often, about what I would do if I was on that show, because there are a few people who have gone in and purposefully tried to only be honest, to never tell Mm. lies. Even when someone comes up and says, are you going to vote me out? They'll try to answer honestly. And it's amazing to watch people kind of fall away from that strategy at times or other times to really hold on to it to their detriment. And um, yeah, it's just, it can serve if you, it's, it's cheap entertainment. Yes. But if you look at each different episode and kind of some of the lessons that may be played out, there are actually ways to apply it to your life. I think it's really, really interesting how we, how we interact with people, how we treat people and how, what we do will almost always come to the light later. Taylor, I'm envisioning a future episode where you and Abby have gone camping out on your property <laughs> for a week or two. Beth and I will come up with some challenges. Yeah. That's great. And uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Oh, I'm, I'm, I love that. I'm loving that idea. I, uh, I think often about how I would do making the fire. So that's the first thing that they, that they have to figure out how to do. Rub don't you always together. think when you watch it too about, cause you know, like I've had a few friends who are on reality shows. So I don't know if you've gotten to this season, uh, the China season of survivor, but Mike Zernow, who's from Traverse city is on that no. season. Okay. You gotta watch the okay. China season. So we have a Trevor City guy on that season. Um, Kim Ryan, who's a chef who won Hell's Kitchen, is also from Trevor City. And you like, so there's viewing parties at mm-hmm. home, right? So I always think about this on the show when someone's like really Machiavellian and survivor or like an, an amazing race. If some husband snaps at his wife and says something really cruel, you just like know that in their hometown, everyone's in a bar watching <laughs> yeah. them be a complete <laughs> jerk. And just yeah. like, you're going to have to own that yeah. now. Like yeah. you just had that moment on national television. What, what, what kind of made Survivor so cool? And I don't actually remember this from from the first season because I was quite young, is that um, if this is a spoiler, I'm sorry, you're 22 years too late. (laughs) It's beyond the statute of limitations. Um, Is Richard, the very well-known gay man that was constantly walking around naked, um, had, had an alliance. And he was one of the first people to really figure out that in order to win, you had to not just figure out how to feed yourself, but you had to have alliances and find people that you could trust. And so he befriended a World War II vet who um, in a lot of ways was not someone that would take a liking to a person like Richard. Mm-hmm. And um, he was very homophobic. And it was interesting when they would go off on their one-on-one interviews for them to kind of talk about each other. And both of them were kind of in a sense saying like, oh, I'm going to get it from my friends when I go home. I, I befriended this homophobe and then this world war two vet is like, I'm going to get it from my friends. When I go home, here's here. I'm best friends with a gay man. They never would have expected that. And, um, how just right away 
in season one, they like hit a relationship like that. And I think that was a totally natural thing. And so I think in, in a lot of ways that set survivor up for success and why they could have so many seasons is because they really tapped into the social aspect right away, Mm -hmm. like right off the bat with that first episode. So it was great. Yeah. Well, the last thing is maybe we, we wrap up here. I just was curious. Um, we talked about TV and movies. I was curious about books because I know you both read. So I was curious if there's anything you've been, not to put you on the spot, I can share and then I can give you a second, to, yeah, th- give me a second. <laughs> to think about if there's anything you're reading. Okay. One I wanted to plug because I think uh, Anthony would really like it. Probably you would too, uh, Taylor, but just because Anthony has taught ethics before, but Michael Schur, who is the showrunner of The Good Place and Parks and Rec in The Office, uh, has a new book out called How to Be a Perfect Person. And he basically, from his experience writing The Good Place and getting into philosophy with all of his writing staff, he writes this book where he basically tries to give you the answer to every moral question that you might have. So he explores, and it's it's lighthearted. It's not like a thick philosophy tome. It's a pop culture guy writing about ethics. But I think that's actually a good approach because a lot of people, I think ethics is is, uh, high barred across. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a, can be a heady topic as Anthony knows from teaching it. Um, so he, you know, he, he gives funny examples and I just think he's so interested in morality himself that the examples he gives are relatable. And one I'll share that I'm sure you guys have had, but he talks about his experience of like when he goes into a Starbucks, making sure that when he puts the tip in the tip jar, the server sees him mm, put the tip in the yeah. tip jar. Mm. And as soon as he described that, I was like, I have always done that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have always like made sure that they turned around from making the coffee and like saw me put it in. Yep. So like, I see, I got your back. Like, but it's a little thing like that that makes you feel like I want them to know that I'm a good person. Yeah. He takes things as small as that up to like really big philosophical issues and just talks about the morality of it. And it's in a fun way. I think yeah. what's the name of the book again, how to be a perfect person. Oh, and it yeah. might be good for your classes because they'll probably know him mm-hmm. from the office and parks and recs and stuff. Yeah. Your Office example just books. now made me uncomfortable. Yeah. I know. I totally, <laughs> yeah. the second he said, it, I was like, I do that every time. Yeah, yeah. And I have to think about myself well, now. <laughs> yeah. I do that same thing. And what I convince myself of is I'm saving that person from disliking someone. So, so yeah. if they don't, if I do tip and they don't see me do it, then they might still dislike me, even though I did do the right thing. And mm-hmm. so then I'm sowing some type of discord in their heart. I'm saving them from that. If yeah. I allow them to see me put the tip in, you don't want to have them experience anger because they think you exactly. weren't generous. Yeah. He actually, and he goes through the whole thing of like, he ultimately lands on like, yeah, I mean, it's a bit selfish because you're wanting to be seen as a good person versus just being a good person, which is what should really matter. But he also said, you know, it kind of makes me optimistic because he had talked to a lot of friends before writing the book and everyone that he's mentioned that scenario to has been like, yes, I've, I've done yep. that. I've tried to make yep. sure I'm seen tipping. And he said, in a way that makes me kind of hopeful because it shows that the ideal of being a good person is something that is still important in our society, mm-hmm. that we still think, yes, it is valuable to be seen as good. Mm-hmm. Whether we think it's as valuable to be good, even when we're not being seen is a different question, but uh, it's a Interesting. Well, the book that I've been reading um, on and off is, and I, I don't remember the name of it, but the author is Brad Leone. So he's a chef. He's on, um, he's, he has a YouTube channel. He works for Bon Appetit. And um, actually, if you haven't seen my YouTube videos, Cooking at Home with Taylor, uh, 
many of those or all of those were kind of based off this inspiration that I got from this chef. And so the cookbook that he came out with recently is kind of a, is it called field notes for food? Field adventure? Notes for, yes. <laughs> food adventure. And, and so okay. he covers everything from tapping, uh, maple trees to going out and harvesting mushrooms to, uh, he lives on the East coast. So there are certain things I can't relate to like going out and catching squid in the morning and then grilling them at night. Hmm. But, um, I've just really found that to be interesting because I think for a long time, these uh, celebrity chefs or maybe even chefs in general were almost, whether it was their fault or not, were almost seen as like um, doing, doing things that were unattainable. Like we could, we could never uh, create the masterpieces in the kitchen that they do. And sometimes I think that was uh, purposeful, like so that they continued to find value. But often other times I think it was just it, the message of how they do things wasn't accurately being portrayed. So I really like this cookbook and why I just read it as a nerd in the morning along with my other books is um, because he makes it all approachable and like, don't take yourself too seriously. You can go out and do some of these things. And I've just really found that to be fun, especially since we've moved to a place that has a little bit more room. And I think I can actually go out and maybe I, I won't find squid. I know that, but I'll find some other interesting things and maybe I'll slap them on the stove and cook them up. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Uh, my nonfiction I've been reading is some stuff from a guy named Neil Schusterman or Schusterman. He does a lot of YA stuff. Mm. I had first read a book of his called Unwind, which okay. was this dystopic. <laughs> That's why I read, uh, I read that book. Yeah, yeah. Those books. It was yeah. fantastic, but really unsettling. Yeah. But he has a book or a series of books called Ark of a Scythe. And book one is called Scythe. Book two is called The Toll. And then the third one is Thunderhead. And I'm in Thunderhead. Really fascinating um, kind of social experiment type of books. And this one deals with a world in the future where technology has gotten to the place where functionally people live, not forever, but they live a thousand years or whatever. And when they start to get old, they can kind of revitalize themselves. And the problem is the, the world gets too full. They have to have people die. And so there's a class of people that is designated to harvest people, so to speak. And they're called scythes. And so they... They check the uh, all the statistics of how people used to die, and they randomly choose people to die. Mm. And when they show up, they kill you. Mm. That sounds like a really weird premise, but it is a fascinating series just about life and death and a number of things. So I'm not quite done with book three on that particular one yet. The nonfiction I'm reading is called um, Stony the Road. By, I believe it's Henry Louis Gates Jr., and it has to do with a history of civil rights. I've been trying to do a lot of nonfiction reading lately just on the history of racism and civil rights issues in the U.S. And so that's my latest one for that. That um, The side book that you mentioned, remind, there's a very, I don't remember this, but there's a very famous Star Trek episode from the 1960s where these um, planets who are at war with each other rather than actually bomb each other and ruin each other's city and culture and stuff, they've agreed to this uh, form of warfare where they, you know, they'll do a, a technological hit like through a computer. And then people randomly are selected from the population to just go into like execution chambers. Mm. Like instead of like bombing a city, it's just like, Oh, we made this hit on you and 10,000 people died. And they just all line up very calmly and they go into these execution chambers. It, like the same thing you're describing. It sounds like a weird premise, 
And of course, like the Star Trek crew is just like, what the hell? <laughs> you know, like they're like, they're not supposed to intervene. Right. Like, why are people just lining up yeah. peacefully and calmly? Because the people have also bought into this idea that rather than, you know, the planets are at war, they haven't been resolved it, but rather than lo lose all of the planet and the culture and mm -hmm. all their things, that they'll agree to this system and just calmly walk in to be executed because you know, it at least preserves the rest of the culture. Mm -hmm. And it's an interesting concept because in the, in the show, you know, when they get into this argument, they're like, how is this any less random than what war actually mm -hmm. is? Oh. So it's, I don't know. It just reminded me of yep. that idea yep. of like, mm -hmm. there's a lot of randomness to how people die. Yeah. Reminds <laughs> me of the purge. Everybody agreed to, yeah. to right. the purge to once rule. a year. And yeah. yeah, I have a blog um, that I've had for a while and I used to do a lot of reviews of young adult literature and my review of his book unwind is the number one, Post that I've had. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. Yep. And that's what you should, you should give a plug for your, what's your blog called? Oh yeah. It's called empires and mangers.blogspot.com. If you want the backstory for the title, uh, I'd love to rename it because it's so awkward to <laughs> announce, uh, announce, but uh, yeah, empires and mangers.blogspot.com. I haven't done reviews of YA for a while, but there's a pretty, pretty large chunk of reviews there. It's a very there's, good blog. And yeah. I actually think, I think the name is cool. So yeah, oh, okay. there's very cool. insightful stuff there. And even I don't know the reason behind the name. I have a, some speculations, <laughs> but um, yeah, Anthony, are we all done sharing all the yeah, interesting stuff so. we've been I mean, reading and watching? It's fun to talk about some, uh, you know, everything going on in the world is yeah. serious too, but yeah, pop culture is always fun to talk right. about. You want to take us out of here? Uh, something, something really profound. Yes, uh, we're out of here. 